invite you to go back with me to Matthew chapter 3 again this morning. Matthew 3. Probably goes without saying, but life is full of the unexpected. Um, it's true for you, true for me. Um, we set our plans now several months ago to go, hey, uh, we're going to have a picnic in September. The weather's going to be beautiful in September. The weather for the last several days has been beautiful in Pennsylvania. I thought, wow, it's actually even cooler than usual. Like, this is going to be the perfect picnic. Second year in a row, we're in the gym. Uh, someone told me this morning, like, you need to stop picking the date for the picnic. <laughs> let, let somebody else pick the date for the picnic. They're probably right. It was in October last year. We got it wrong. It's in September this year. We got it wrong. I got it wrong. I shouldn't use we. I'll say I got it wrong, or the Lord just wants us to be flexible. Like, we're starting to get too good at setting things up in the gym. Like, 20 minutes after we arrived yesterday, it's like, well, we're done. Like, it shouldn't go this fast. Uh, we'd rather be outside. Um, you know, you don't expect to walk into church Sunday morning and go, hey, the lights are predominantly off. I'm going to have to work extra hard to stay awake while pastor speaks, okay? Um, it's unexpected. Uh, I was thinking, it's a little bit like the mission field where, you know, you go and see church planning on a mission field. There's all kinds of unexpected things that you encounter. Thinking back to first missions trip I took, I uh, was just here a year. We went to St. Lucia on the mission field. We went to do vacation Bible school, not realizing that, like, me, Melinda, and the six or seven teens that were with us were like the team, that's it. Uh, and here's over 100 kids, have at it. It's a one-room church, doesn't matter if it's raining, you're inside, you're outside, it's just what it is. got to be flexible. Thinking about being flexible on the mission field going to Myanmar and some of the food that we were handed. We're you know, celebrating the church plant that our church helped with, and we're there, and um, they're sitting down these like fried whole fish, and you're just supposed to eat them, like everything. You just pick it up like a French fry and eat everything that's there. I'm like, that's unexpected. Um, those kind of food things don't usually happen in American ministry, though. Um, but I, we had church last Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I, went, I had a meeting after church, so I was here for a meeting for a little bit, and then went home, and my family was really excited to see me and tell me, actually, I think it was one of my kids, tell me that someone at church decided, because of what we had looked at in the message, that I needed to try locusts. Because that's what Matthew 3 was talking about. And in fact, they even gave me their interpretive perspective on what the text means when it says locusts and goes, well, that's a grasshopper. And those are fairly prolific in Pennsylvania, right? Um, and so I got to try grasshoppers last Sunday night. They were wonderful. If you go to the store in the cookie aisle, Keebler, they're chocolate and mint. They're really good. Okay? You can thank the Ruthiers for our opening illustration this morning. Uh, that was unexpected. I found out I like locusts. I like grasshopper. Very unexpected. You know, when we go to the text of Matthew 3, we are coming back there. Really, each of the three sections has something unexpected in it. Verses 1 through 6, we looked at this call to repentance where we're briefly introduced to John the Baptist and told he's John the Baptist, he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Like that's not exactly, again, the place that we expect for booming ministry to occur. He's in this uninhabited, desert-like place between Jerusalem and the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, but he's out there preaching. His message, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And we find out, well, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This guy's preaching. And then you get to verse 4, and you're like, this guy's strange, right? We find out that John the Baptist is this guy who wears camel's hair with a leather belt. And he eats locusts, not the Keebler kind. He has a unique diet with rather rough, uncomfortable, unique clothing, ministering in a rather unique place. It's the kind of thing that we would look at from kind of 21st century Western American eyes and go, there's no way this guy is going to succeed. And yet, you remember where verses 5 and 6 take us, telling us that Jerusalem and all Judea and the area around the Jordan, they're going. And they're repenting of their sins and being baptized. They're confessing their sins. It's a wonderful remind us, reminder to us that God uses the unexpected. God uses the weak. It is not just going, well, you know, how well do we do this and how skilled am I? Like God delights in using us in our weakness with all of our idiosyncrasies because then he receives the glory. That's the unexpected part of verses 1 through 6. Then you get to verses 7 through 12, and we find something that I think, like, like we may not catch it right away, but it ought to be really shocking and unexpected to us as well. Because we moved from that call to repentance in verses 1 to 6 to this condemnation of hypocritical worship in verses 7 through 12. Because verse 7 tells us that in the midst of the popularity of all these people going out to see John the Baptist, the scribe, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees rather, come too. Why is that unexpected? One, these groups don't get along. Won't rehash it from last Sunday night. But these two groups disagree with each other on basically every major theological point. We would not expect them to be together, but here they are showing up together. That's unexpected. But probably what should catch us even more unexpected, because, like, again, we read with some degree of Bible familiarity, and so we're like, oh, yeah, these guys are bad guys. That's not what was culturally expected in that day. For these guys to show up to John the Baptist preaching, and John called them, you guys are a bunch of snakes. Right? Like, again, if you walked into church this morning and someone's like, you're a snake, like, nice to see you too, right? These are the religious leaders. They're expected or respected. They're esteemed in their culture. And John minces no words. He goes after them. He's like, who warns you that God's judgment is coming? And asking, why are you showing up to get baptized? You need to actually live a lifestyle that fits with turning from your sin. You need to bring forth fruit, meat to repentance. Your behavior needs to match your belief. So indicting them for their hypocrisy as religious leaders. And he tells them judgment is coming. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And what's coming is unquenchable fire of judgment. That's unexpected. For the religious leaders of that day, as respected as they were, to be condemned by John the Baptist. And yet, when we get to verses 13 to 17, we find yet more information in the text that is unexpected. As we look at the baptism of Jesus this morning, we're going to begin with an unexpected action in verse 13. An unexpected action in verse 13. In the midst of John's ministry, Jesus shows up. Verse 13 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. 
Keep in mind, John probably knows Jesus. They are related to one another through their mothers. Luke chapter 1, verse 36 makes that very clear, where Elizabeth receives word that she's going to have this child that is going to be John the Baptist, and Mary receives word that God has uniquely worked in her, that this she's going to be with child through the Holy Spirit, and uh, these uh, two women are going to have babies within this extended family. Furthermore, uh, we consider it to be unexpected action. Uh, not only should John realize that he knows Jesus, but the, ge- the, brief, the brief geography that's mentioned here tells us Jesus is leaving his home region of Galilee. You could look maybe in the maps in the back of your Bible, but just to realize this isn't just like, hey, let me take a little 15-minute walk to go see what's going on with John the Baptist. John is in the wilderness of Judea. He's south and to the east of where Jesus is in Galilee. And yet Jesus leaves Galilee to go down to this area where John is ministering, making a very intentional trip. But then we're told the purpose of all of that action, which again, even the purpose should be unexpected because Jesus says he's going to be baptized by John. We talked about this again last Sunday, but let me just remind you or uh, inform you for those who weren't here that idea of the word baptism, again, means to place under the water and to bring back up again. The whole reason people were baptized was to identify with someone's teaching, to go, I agree with this. I agree with what this person is saying. John's baptism was about saying, I agree that I need to turn from my sin. I need to repent because The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is right now. And as we discussed, that's because the king was present. The Messiah had been born. Jesus was here. That was the ministry of John, right? The fulfillment of Isaiah 40, prepare the way of the Lord. Like, Messiah is coming. Get get ready for his arrival. Do that by turning from your sin because the king has come. In a moment, we'll consider further exactly why Jesus wanted to be baptized. But for now, just realize this is an unexpected action for John. In fact, that becomes clear when we move secondly to verse 14 and see the understandable objection. The understandable objection, because Jesus has come to be baptized. John forbids him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. We need to understand this rightly, because like, again, reading with modern eyes, we're like, well, of course, this is Jesus. This is God's Son. Like, how in the world are you going to baptize God's Son? And yet, I think when you read John chapter 1, you realize that John the Baptist doesn't fully know all of that yet. Yes, they probably know each other. Yes, they are in family. But John 1 verse 31 makes it clear that prior to baptizing Jesus, John doesn't realize Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is coming, And it seems that he knows Jesus' reputation is one of living rightly, which theologically we would expect and get to go, he's never sinned. To go, here's Jesus showing up. How do I baptize Jesus? Like, he's going to repent and I'm going to baptize him? This guy doesn't sin. So John's saying, I'm actually the one who should be, you should be baptizing me. Like, in terms of role, you're better than me, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And so John begins to object. It does become clear in John 1, by the way, if you read through that text, verse 33, verse 34, that after John baptizes Jesus, now he knows. He knows exactly who this guy is at that point. 
John will come to the realization where he gives those familiar words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. In fact, the idea in John 1 is this later time where John is recounting, he, he introduces Jesus like, look, that's the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sins of the world. Let me tell you how I know. I went to baptize him. I didn't know who he was, but after I baptized him, I came to realize this is the one that God had told me about. This is the one that I was preparing the way for. Again, Jesus has lived a very good life, and so initially here, John makes this objection. Even the tense of the verb when he says uh, he forbids him is the idea of like, this is a repeated, ongoing, like, nope, 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 nope. It isn't just like a single exchange. Like, he told him no once, and it's like, okay, well, fine, if I have to. John is insistently, repeatedly saying, I can't baptize you. Now, again, think with me for a little bit about context from last week. Because I believe the Spirit of God in authoring the Scriptures here, giving us the details He does, creates a tremendous sense of irony here. Because on the one hand, what we saw last week is the religious leaders, the respected ones of that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees show up, and John's like, nope, not you. These are people that culturally they would have looked like, these guys are great examples. And John's like, no, you actually need to live in a manner that's worthy of repentance. Whereas when it comes to Jesus, John looks and goes, I also can't baptize this guy, but it's for an incredibly different reason. This one has lived rightly. In fact, the religious leaders on the one hand wouldn't turn from their sin. They're being called to. But Jesus, we know, knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, right? He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Having considered the unexpected action, the understandable objection, third, let's look at Jesus' irrefutable reason in verse 15. Jesus' irrefutable reason. Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now. Go ahead and allow me, let me be baptized. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And I think it's really important, both in the immediate text where we are here in Matthew 3, 13 to 17, and for the future in the verses ahead, and then by way of application, even for us to understand Jesus going, I need to fulfill, we need to fulfill all righteousness. That is Jesus' reason for saying, John, allow me to be baptized. John, Go ahead and let me do this because we must meet the demands of righteousness, right? You think of righteousness, again, it's really important. We always just grab this word and get it. It means to meet God's standard. If we give it just a very simple definition, righteousness is meeting God's standard. We can divide that into both a negative and a positive. We often focus on the negative. The negative side means we don't sin. We should not sin. We should fight against sin. We should confess and seek forgiveness when we do sin. To go, I want, I want to make sure negatively I avoid that wrong. Does Jesus fulfill that? Well, yes, we can say that theologically. We understand that. But actually, let me just cast your vision forward a little bit. Where does the text go after Jesus' baptism? Matthew 4. Maybe you can't see your Bible because you're all looking at me like, just tell us. Okay. Um, in Matthew 4, is Jesus' temptation. And does Jesus avoid sin? Absolutely. Using the word of God, 
saying, no, I can't because Scripture says, because it is written. And we see him fulfilling all righteousness by not sinning when tempted. But here in the text, we're reminded there's not just an avoidance of a negative with righteousness. There is the presence of a positive. There's a presence of a positive. We might think about it this way. We could go, you know what? We're not supposed to lie. So if I'm going to be righteous, that means I need to avoid lying. You know, if I avoid lying my entire life, but I am not kind, have I been righteous? No. Because God has also told me there's to be the presence of this positive. There's to be this presence of actual kindness. To go, you know what? And it's not just avoiding unkindness. It's actually like, how do I proactively show kindness to others around me? And so Jesus here is saying, we have to fulfill all righteousness, and while Jesus has never sinned, and the next text will demonstrate that, we're also being told, and he's going to do something in order to make sure the presence of the positive is there, in order to make sure that he fulfills God's uh, will for him. Jesus is setting the example for us in righteous living as he himself is being baptized. Now again, We talked about this last week, but John's baptism was very limited in its scope. When you get to Acts 18, and Apollos is still following John's baptism, he's rebuked, corrected, and instructed to go, no, we don't do that anymore. It's no longer John's baptism. What are they supposed to do at that point? It's Jesus' baptism. It's Christian baptism. Okay, It's Romans 6 kind of baptism. So Jesus here in this in-between time is saying, we have to fill all righteousness I need to be baptized, identifying with the message, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is going, I agree, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's identifying with that, publicly giving testimony to it by being baptized. I think there's by implication, by application for us, a need to realize as well, when we come to know Jesus as Savior and go, I am repenting of my sin, I'm believing on Jesus to go, I'm going to identify with that in baptism. I'm going to do what Romans chapter 6 instructs me to do. You know, thankfully, when we look at a text like this, it's good for us to be reminded that while we should strive for righteousness, our need to be righteous is not something we will ever meet on our own. Like, for all of us here, has any of us ever perfectly met God's standard through life? Maybe in a moment, maybe. But to day to day, week to week, month to month, the Bible tells us there's none righteous. There's none that meets God's standard. Okay? But we're reminded who met God's standard, who came to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus. And so, yes, he's meeting God's standard here so that ultimately you and I don't have to. Matthew 5, it's going to be a little while before we get there. But Matthew 5 makes that all the more clear because Jesus teaches there that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he ends Matthew 5 in verse 48 by saying, so be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And we're like, I'm not perfect. Who helps us then? Jesus. It's by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is that gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus gives a reason why he is being baptized, going he must meet the demands of righteousness 
in a small, maybe side note kind of application way, this should cause us to rejoice because you and I can receive Jesus' righteousness because of he did. He met all the demands of the law. He fulfilled God's desire for him. And so when we put our faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. God looks at you, if you put your faith in Christ, God looks at you and he sees Christ's righteousness on you. He looks at you and goes, I see them as I see my son. Staggering, staggering. While the offertory was being played earlier, I guess we call it an instrumental now, um, instrumentals being played earlier, I was thinking of that text in 1 John 3. It tells us, beloved, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Right? And he says, beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. Like, we don't fully know what the future holds, but here's what we do know, 1 John 3, verse 2. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Like, you'll be fully like Jesus when you see Jesus. Because right now, there's a lot of times where you and I don't look like Jesus. We don't think like Jesus. We don't talk like Jesus. We don't act like Jesus. We don't respond like Jesus. Like, but there will come a day where if you put your faith in Jesus, you will. Because you're his child, and children look like their parents. Okay? You will look like God. You will look like the Son. Whoa. And so what does 1 John 3, verse 3 say? Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he's pure. So if that's your future, strive to live like it now. But as we look at Matthew 3, we can go, praise God, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He does that even by being baptized here. So far, we've seen an unexpected action, the understandable objection, Jesus' irrefutable reason forth. And finally, let's look at the identifying commendation. The identifying commendation in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, say it very simply here, Jesus was obediently baptized. Jesus was obediently baptized. Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water. Again, consistent with other baptisms in Scripture, as well as the meaning of the word baptized, Jesus was placed down under the water and brought back up out of the water. And you've heard that a lot, but I think it's important in our day. We get so casual and flippant with things that we're like, well, the method doesn't matter. Well, Scripture pertains a pretty consistent manner of method. You go, belief in a message is the grounds for being baptized, and here's the method in which baptism occurs. Jesus is baptized. He's brought up out of the water. That act, by the way, just reminding you in Romans 6, is given additional significance. Why? Remember why we're, what baptism pictures in Romans 6? Which, by the way, we are doing a baptism service in October. Exciting for people to publicly say, I put my faith in Christ. I want to identify with that publicly. So why do we place under the water and bring out? What does Romans 6 tell us? You don't have to answer this time, okay? But it pictures Jesus' death, his burial going under, and coming out of the water pictures his resurrection. It's Romans 6 baptism. So that's why the method matters. Just as Jesus was obediently baptized, Christians today are to identify with Jesus by being baptized as well. This isn't just for, this is not for infants. It's not for anyone. It's for Christians, for those who have believed. The identifying commendation first, just simply Jesus was obediently baptized, but secondly, Jesus was uniquely recognized. Three thoughts here and then we're done. Jesus was uniquely recognized first by the Spirit of God. 
as Jesus comes up out of the water, lo, the heavens were opened unto him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. This is one of those points that, at least in my mind, I'm very quick to read past and kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Not sure what to do with that. Like, why did the Spirit of God choose a dove? Why not some other animal? Why not a bird? Why not some presence otherwise? I mean, like in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost, there's like flames of fire over their heads. Like, wouldn't that have been cool if Jesus was back? But actually, there's a reason why this detail is given to us in the text. On the one hand, very simply, it just helps us know that each member of the Trinity was present. Jesus is being baptized. The Spirit of God comes down. We're going to hear from God the Father in just a moment. But on another hand, the text in John 1 that I've already referred us to a couple times help us understand that God had made it clear to John that the Spirit of God would come on an individual in the future, and that's how he would know this is the coming one. This is the Messiah. This is the Deliverer. And so this event at Jesus' baptism was the evidence that John needed. John was that forerunner. John was that proclaimer to go, the kingdom of God is here. And now John knows as the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus. That is why John again says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was uniquely recognized first by the Spirit of God, secondly with the voice of God. Verse 17 says, And a voice from heaven saying, We read the commendation that comes, the additional details regarding the event that are given in John 1. It becomes clear that God the Father is the voice behind this message. To go, uh, yes, God the Spirit is present, but God the Father is also present. He's identifying His Son. He's commending His Son. What that means in the future is that Jesus is to be heard and followed. Jesus is to be heard and to be followed. To go, this is God's Son. Hear Him. Listen to what He says. Because Jesus' baptism is going to be the start of Jesus' public ministry. We've already touched it last week, but you think about where we leave off in Matthew 2. Herod's trying to kill babies. Herod's trying to kill Jesus. We know Jesus is now in Nazareth of Galilee. That's it. Now you get to Matthew 3, and Jesus is being baptized as an adult, about 30 years of age, Luke tells us. What happened in there? We're not given a lot of those details. But from the point of Jesus' baptism moving forward, we're being told, here's what he did. Here's what he taught. Here's the miracles that were accomplished. Here are the people that followed. That starts by God recognizing his son, kicking off, if you will, initiating his ministry. We've seen the unique recognition by the Spirit of God with the voice of God, third and somewhat repetitively, as the Son of God. To go this unique recognition points to the fact that Jesus, this man who is in the water, who just came out of the water, is in fact God's son. This is one of those times where it would be really good for us to read the Bible as though for the first time. Because for most of you here, many of you here, you're like, oh, I've heard this. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. The voice comes. Yep. That's Jesus. Yeah. I know. I know that's Jesus. I want you to imagine being there. John sees someone that he knows shows up and like, no, 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 I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. John not fully realizing what's taking place. There are others there that have also been baptized. 
okay? And as Jesus comes out of the water, here comes this bird. Whoa, that's unique. And then the sky opens, and then there's this voice. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this is unique. This is different. God is recognizing his son, pointing to his uh, commendation. Jesus has acted in humble, submissive obedience to the Father's will. Jesus has sought to fulfill all righteousness while avoiding sin. He's now identified as God saying, this is my son. I am pleased in him. And so the stage is set for Jesus' ministry. For people to believe. For people to repent of their sin and to follow him because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And can I just remind us today that there is still a need for us today to heed John's message and go repent. The king has come. To turn from my sin, to turn from my selfishness, to believe that God has sent his son to be the deliverer from sin, to fulfill the demands of righteousness, to die on the cross to pay for our sins and our wrong, so that by faith we can be rescued. By faith alone we can be saved. And then after we repent, after we believe, after we're saved, to then live in righteousness. Jesus sets the example for us of what living in righteousness looks like. He's going to do it in fighting sin in chapter 4. He's going to get to chapter 5, and he's going to begin to expose. Like, you think you're good, you think you're okay, but we're not. Here's what the blessed people in the kingdom of heaven live like. And when you think that you're good, just remember, you got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, let me take you through the laws. He's like, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. And he ups the law every time, saying, live in righteousness. Meet God's standard. Now, it's important that we keep these things in proper perspective because we could go, well, man, I need to live in righteousness to earn God's favor. No, actually, the point of Jesus is we don't because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. I believe in him, and he saves me. His righteousness is given to me. But once I've done that then, I am saved to do good works. It's that Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 idea. To go, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Why? We are created to do good works. It's that message of Titus. So after salvation, the need to live in righteousness could be actions like, okay, I need to publicly identify with Jesus by being baptized. It could be fighting sin, confessing it, going, God, I need strength for this battle, this temptation. But it also could be the addition of that positive, to go, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He demonstrated love to people. He spoke the truth to people. Perhaps I need to make sure that I'm living, adding that righteousness in as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text that reminds us of what Jesus did while here on this earth, not just in avoiding sin, but Lord, also in seeking to fulfill your complete will and demonstrate what living in righteousness looks like. God, we are thankful that our salvation from sin, our standing with you, is not dependent on our works, but it is simply given to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That somehow you can look at us and say there is no condemnation when we are in 
Christ Jesus. Lord, on the basis of that wonderful imputed righteousness that you give to us, God, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us to fight sin and to add positive righteousness to our lives as believers, that you would be glorified in us. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for first loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.